the Father, and to the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We are starting a brand new series in the book of Luke, and it, I should have put one more slide. I do have a slide that says uh, time of expectation, which is really the time of Advent. When I think about Advent, at least as a kid, this was like straight up anticipation, and I was just so excited for probably one of, for many of you, your favorite holiday, and for many of you, is, is Christmas your favorite holiday? Between Christmas and Ascension, I think for a lot of people, they're trying to figure out what is the greatest holiday they could have. So we are looking in the book of Luke, and this is the plan. This is the game plan. It's not too often that we've had four services in a row that we could do this. So we have, and it's starting in December, so we have four Sundays in a row. And in these four Sundays, we're going to break up the first chapter of Luke, and we're going to just go through some sections of it. So it's going to be a little bit different because, the, as you heard uh, Scott read, these are a little bit longer. So we're going to go through these, and it's kind of not going to be quite a running commentary, but we're just, the reality that... Um, at a specific time, God used Luke to write. So we're going to talk through and to get some kind of idea of what it means to immerse yourself in a book. And these first chapters, and it's going to lead all the way up to Christmas Eve when we're going to look at Luke chapter 2. And even Charlie Brown knows what happens in Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree, right? And then there's shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. So that's Luke 2. We're going to look on that on Christmas Eve. But we're going to look up all the things that lead up to it. And a couple things to keep in mind. One is that it is not... Christmas for them. I, and I always forget this as a kid. Like when I read these stories about like uh, Zechariah and I read the stories about Elizabeth or Mary and the angel coming, I'm like, wow, that had to be so amazing right at Christmas time. But to them, it was like a normal Tuesday or whatever day of the week it was. This was just like normal life functioning. We're going to look at one of these big events that's happening in Zechariah's life. A little bit of a reminder, the difference between some of the authors. So the authors are a little bit different when you think about um, the best way to kind of get into it is to understand a little bit about these authors. The, uh, I learned a couple languages, not very well, but I learned some languages uh, growing, growing up through school. So we had Latin and we had German. And did anyone other uh, else have languages and you had like vocable cards? You did? So the, the way they talk about it now is like you try and get immersed as much as possible. That is the best way to learn a language, not by vocable cards. I learned it by vocable cards, which is why I can't speak Latin. The kids are so disappointed when I go to school and I teach and they're like, hey, can you say uh, that plane goes super fast in Latin? No. I'm like, oh, that's really good. Let me get back to you on that. Uh, so there, there's a couple things. There was actually, uh, this is totally aside, but would, do you, anyone remember Kurt Schilling? This is years and years ago. He was a great pitcher. He pitched for Arizona, the Diamondbacks, and he also pitched for the Red Sox, and I think he won a World Series there. But they showed one of the ESPN commercials was Kurt Schilling going through uh, vocable cards so he could understand the people of Boston. So one I remember, he just goes, wicked hard, wicked hard. And then he's like looking at the back to see what that means, which is pretty funny. So we're, we're talking about languages, and uh, the, the way we're going to do it, we're going to immerse ourselves in the book of Luke. So we'll start with Matthew. So Matthew, very briefly, when you think about the Matthew, he was a tax collector. So when he writes the book, his primary goal, he's a Jewish man, was to convince the other Jewish people that Jesus really was the Messiah. And the way that he does that is he quotes more Old Testament prophecies than any of the other book writers. So that's Matthew. And then we have uh, Matthew Mark. Mark is also Jewish. This is one of the disciples, and he writes in a very fast style. So if you ever read you want to get it done fast. If you're trying to do it, read Mark. It, it's kind of, and then, and that, it literally is written in Greek. The, the word it means is like, and then, and then, and then, and then. And he talks about Jesus' power and kind of, he's a servant to all. So that's Mark. John is a little bit circular. So if you read John, it's a little bit kind of a different feel. And he kind of has these themes like light and darkness. Do you read that? And, and John, the best part about John from a, from a student standpoint, it was the easiest Greek available. Not to understand, but it was the easiest one. It's like very simple, very clean. That's not quite the same thing that is true for Luke. So Luke is not Jewish, 
He's not one of the 12 disciples. This is news for some people. But instead, Luke is a Greek who writes. And so we're going to look at that and talk about how he kind of put this together. And we'll start with our, uh, the beginning here. So many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. So the key idea there is fulfilled, right? So he has witnessed that there was prophecies to be fulfilled. And then Jesus actually did come, Emmanuel, on earth. And Jesus was born. And Jesus died on the cross. And Jesus was raised again. And so he says that many have undertaken to try this. So, but he's like, well, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So there's multiple people that witnessed the life of Jesus, but ultimately that's how they picked like the renewal of who the apostles were going to be. They said, we want someone who's been with us since the beginning. We want someone who witnessed who Jesus was. And this was very distinct because um, there's also people who witnessed Jesus as a risen Lord. So when you're reading Corinthians, it talks about 500 witnesses have seen who Jesus is. So Luke said, okay, we, we have people to talk to. So with this in mind, I set myself to have a careful investigate, uh, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. So he's like, okay. So I start researching this. He does this in his main job. We know from uh, the Apostle Paul, he actually worked with the Apostle Paul for a while and traveled with him. He's referred to as the beloved physician. He had like this private doctor that went with him everywhere he went. So this is kind of fascinating. So he has the doctor and he is doing all this research to try and set the best account and he does have the, the most full account. So if you look at the, the uh, gospel accounts, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Luke writes the book of Luke, and he also writes the book of Acts. So half the New Testament by volume is written by Luke. So I think this is a fascinating thing as we look at what he does. So he says, I'm going to write all this down. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but people struggle a little bit because never again is Theophilus mentioned. So we have a couple possibilities, and I'll just let you decide. One is it's a rich person who is the one who actually paid for him to do all this investigating, like a patron. Like when you think of the Middle Ages, they talk about a patron and that a patron of the arts. And kind of we don't use that term. I'm a patron of my kids. I mean, so this is like this is this is this idea of this patron idea. So that could be Theophilus. The other possibility, and maybe. I would probably lean a little bit more towards this, is if um, you look at that word, do you see any parts of it, if you break it up, that you recognize in the English language? Phileo. Love, yeah, that's love. So Philadelphia, brotherly love. And then Theus. God. So this is theologians, are studies of the things of God. So this is a person who loves God. So most excellent lover of God. And I thought, oh, that's kind of a strange term that we use, but if I just wrote a letter that said, I want to thank uh, the Denver Bronco, to the Denver Bronco fan. And what does that literally mean? It literally means the person who, who loves the Denver Broncos. It's fanatic for the Denver Broncos. So that could be a, a term of endearment for all the people who are suffering through this season, right? This could be, that's what we could be writing. So Theophilus could just mean to those who love the Lord, or it could actually be another term for the church. So that's the other possibilities. But either way, he says, here's the reason I'm going to go after it. I'm going to write this for you, Theophilus. So that you may know certain things that you have been taught. So then he jumps into it. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. So Herod is the same one who killed, uh, attempted to kill Jesus. So not a great upright person. He's an Idumean, which means he's not truly Jewish. And he kind of leans towards the, the Roman government. Not a great guy. And it's during this time he dies in 4 BC, which means Jesus, this is how we date Jesus, if you didn't know this. We date Jesus' birth between 4 and 6 BC because of this reason he dies in 4. 
So his, this guy's name is Zechariah. He belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife was Elizabeth, who was a descendant of Aaron. And both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Sound like a good couple? So as a kid, did anyone know, you're familiar with this story, like the angel appearing to Zechariah? I did not have high esteem for Zechariah growing up. Because in my mind, when I hear the term Zechariah, he's just the guy who didn't believe the angel. So this is not, but according to this, when you read it, what does it say? This is a very upright person. In the eyes of God, God says he's blameless, he's a solid human being. Does that mean he's without sin? No. But does that mean that they understood who God was, that they lived their life in accordance with God wanted? The thing I want to bring up, and I think this is really interesting that they tag these two things together, is both of them were righteous in the sight of God, and that should be enough. And, and I think if you'd sit down, we talk about you know, like raising your kids and raising your grandkids and the people that you know, it should be enough that you are upright in God's eyes, that you were accepted in God's eyes. But is that how most people see themselves? Wouldn't life be easier, right? This is just an aside, but wouldn't life be easier if we just viewed our life and our value through how God viewed us rather than how the world viewed us? I think it would make it a whole lot easier. But listen to what's happening to them. So it says, they were upright in God's eyes, However, we're going to share two more things. They were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So just talking about stigmas, uh, our, the, what God considers a stigma, let's just say that is not ideal, and what the world considers a stigma is two different things. So I can give you some real obvious examples, um, how we view sexuality. God says, okay, it is not good if you have any relations outside of marriage. That's God's view. Does the world still see that as a stigma? or you look at how you treat people, uh, it, God says you should love all people, even your enemy. Does the world see that the same way? No, I don't think so. You could call it down like again and again. The value, God says you should be content with the things I've given you. The world doesn't quite see it that way. And I think this is the struggle when you're talking about, do I view myself through the way that God views me? Or do I view myself the way that the world views me? So in the world, let's just ask it this way. What kind of stigmas are there in the world? If you just say, what kind of stigmas does the world have when they look at people? I think there's some. I mean, we, we said this wouldn't be one of them, but um, is it still, would there be a stigma of a teenage pregnancy? Yeah, I think that would, that's still a stigma. Would there be a stigma if you're poor? Uh, what if you deal with addiction? Is that, is there a stigma there? Sure. I mean, so you're starting to see uh, what if, um, what if you had all kinds of potential to do amazing things and instead, you're not. Like, this is one of the biggest ones, right? That's a stigma that people look at you and you didn't fulfill your potential. What happens if you went to school for a really long time and got all kinds of student loans, and then you don't have a job that can pay for those student loans? These are stigmas, right? And so what we're struggling with and what they were struggling with, and I think you can get a sense, um, the way the world viewed Zachariah and Elizabeth would be different than how we view them because I don't think there's still a stigma if you don't have kids. That maybe was in the day, but I don't think that's a stigma now. So some of the people in our church don't have kids. I don't think anyone looks at you differently if you don't have kids. I'm not trying to make eye contact with anyone in particular, um, but we have a lot of kids. So you, maybe you feel this pressure like, hey, we, everybody at church has kids. We got to hold up the team here. But, uh, but there is this, set, I don't think that's a big thing. If you go to the mall without kids, does anyone think anything of it? I'm a little jealous on like a Friday night when I just, I'm like, hey, they have no kids. That's very nice. Um, but, but there's no stigma, right? But for them, there was. And so when you think about the things that you struggle with, 
um, you, I think, can put ourselves in the shoes of Zechariah and Elizabeth because the way the Bible talks about it, Psalm 127, it says um, that he compares kids to an arrow and blessed is the, the man whose quiver is full. And you just think about uh, Samuel, very famous, but his mom was uh, Hannah and it comes to it and she came and she's in the temple of God. She's there and she is praying so fervently that the priest thinks, uh, Elijah thinks she's drunk. Like there was this deep desire to have kids because the way they viewed that and the way the world viewed it is that if you didn't have kids, there was something wrong with you. And that's a huge thing. That, that's this huge, huge weight. So when we read the first part, they're blameless in God's eyes. What do you think they struggled with? I mean, as human beings, when you just want to get in their shoes a little bit, Elizabeth has not able to conceive and they're both very old. And the reason it adds that is not because of the stigma of age. That wasn't, that's a stigma now, actually. If you're talking about age, you, has anyone tried to find a job after 50? Age is a stigma now, right? This is not a benefit. And it's, it, you just think about the way that kids treat the elderly in our culture versus other cultures, it's a whole different world. But for them, that wasn't the issue. But the, what is it, why is it adding that sentence? They weren't able to conceive, and it doesn't say yet. It basically said they're not able to conceive, and, you know, the time has passed. So for them, when they function, and when they go to the market, and people look, they're always going to be known as the family. Just like you can imagine, that's the girl who had a baby when she was 14, right? Or that's the, that's the guy who's the town drunk, or that's the person who... Um, has all this loan debt and they're doing stupid stuff with their life. That's the person who got fired or that's the parent. I mean, it's, it's kids I've worked with where their parents are in jail, right? They, they don't brag about that. They don't have a shirt like, my dad's in jail. Where's your dad? I mean, they don't do that, right? Because there's a stigma for them. When people would point, they would say, that's the couple that can't have kids. So you can imagine this weight. So once, uh, when Zachariah's division was on duty, this is just a little background stuff as we get to the main point. So once when Zachariah's division was on duty, and, the way, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This is just to clarify something. I never understood this as a kid because um, there's the Levites and the priests, and you have to be from Aaron's line to be part of the priests. Actually, Elizabeth and uh, Zechariah are from Aaron's line. This is a good thing. And the way that they, the way I understood it, I thought the temple was just huge, and all of these guys just worked at the temple. I thought that was their job. That's not how it works. Uh, most of them had real jobs in the towns and in the world. And then the, when they're by lot, like when their appointed time would come in, so you'd be gone, like off for 11 months, and then the 12th month you would be working, like you're, it's your time. So now they say the chances, and I don't know if this is accurate, the chances for him to be the one chosen by lot are like one in 20,000. So this is not like he's doing this every week or every, oh, you know, my time's up, I gotta go burn incense. He would go there and he would work and function, but he doesn't necessarily get to per be the person who goes into the holy place and light this incense. So this could be like a once in a lifetime thing. He's very old and like, it's like when I got to go to the synod convention, this is like the dream come true that I got to go all the way there. So this is this much. That was a joke and no one laughed. So it's, <laughs> it's like, does he really like the convention? No, no, I don't. So, um, so this is really exciting day. So imagine this. This is like, this is the, the big time. So now there's this curtain and you can't go across it. They, they do this. He's going to light the incense and he goes in there and he's this moment. You can imagine a little bit nervous and he has all the things and someone's like giving him the pump up speech like, you got this, even though you don't have kids. You know, like, like you know, all these things. Subtle digs from the other priests. Um, so he's chosen by lot, and they came time to burn the incense came. 
all the worshipers are assembled and praying outside. So now you have to imagine this. You're all praying and worshiping while this goes on behind the curtain, like literally behind the curtain. This is not like Wizard of Oz. This is happening. And usually this does not take long. Um, how long did it take me to light the candles, even hand it to a young, young man? To This does not take a long time, right? There's some ceremony and there's some processes and they'd say some psalms, but we're not talking like a long, long time. So you're praying and this is uh, like when you were a kid, do you ever, uh, as a kid, I shouldn't even mention this since the kids were in. This is how I functioned. Our church was 1,600 people. It was massive. It was massive. Uh, Christmas Eve, you couldn't even sit anywhere. And I remember the prayers. Like now as an adult, I'm immature enough not to open my eyes. Unless I sense my kids are doing something wrong when I was, a, you know, like when they're young. But as a kid, did you ever do that? You're doing this, and then you're just like, you only open one eye because somehow that's more discreet. And you just like look to see what else is happening and then you make eye contact with the other kid and the other kids like starts making faces and it's your brother or sister and you're like we can't laugh because then I'm gonna get in trouble and we're not gonna get donuts on the way home. Anyone else experience this? So you can imagine, you can imagine the kids just being out like praying with their family and they're ready and they're, they're thinking okay it's about five minutes this shouldn't be long. And then like the, the clock is going and going and this is why it goes long. The angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he's gripped with fear as every single time they, they uh, encounter an angel. And there's a, a fast, we can talk about this for a while, but the gist is how amazing is it that they're perfect in God's eyes uh, and the God, that's how God views them. They're blameless in his eyes through Christ. And now when real holiness gets there, like you can feel good about yourself when you're doing the right things and you feel like, oh, I'm the churchy person on the street and things like that. But then suddenly when you're confronted with true perfection, he's gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you are to call him John. So we got a couple things in, in just a, a strange thing. It's not too often that they said, here's what you're going to call him. But he's like, okay, got it, John. He's going to be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. And I think this is like... Uh, if you're going to have a blessing to someone who's a parent, I think this is, we all hope that our kids are going to be a joy and a blessing. They truly are. But how, what would it mean if an angel of God said, you are going to have a baby, and the baby you have is going to be a joy and a delight to you? Like, you're, you don't have these worries in the back of your head, like, this is going to be a disappointment. There's going to be frustrations. They're going to mess things up. But he says, this is going to be a true delight to you. And many times, well, just think if an angel said that for any decision. Like, you're going to take a job, and it's going to be a joy and delight to you. Right? You're going to make dry turkey. And it's going to be a joy and a delight to you. Any of these things, I think, would give you joy. So many will rejoice because of his birth. People are amazed. And why are they amazed? Because this is an old couple, and God is using this to his glory. We see that a couple different times. Um, we see Joseph, and God, he talks about that same thing. He's in prison for 14 years, and what does he recognize? God is using that to his glory. We see that with Abraham. He doesn't have a son until he's 100 years old with uh, his wife, Sarah. And what, for what reason? So that God could use this to his glory. He's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. And now it gets a little weird, right? So he's like, okay, John, uh, he's going to be a joy and delight. This is good. People are going to rejoice. He's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or any other fermented drink, which means um, he's going to be under a vow basically for his whole birth. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people, and I think this is an awesome thing, right? He is going to be a joy, and the Holy Spirit is going to work with him, and he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord, and that's his primary job, so it gets into the second side. And the spirit and power of Elijah, who is the last Old Testament prophet that we had, to turn the hearts, one of the last Old Testament prophets, 
uh, their parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Could you imagine you've never had kids and you just want to have a kid that doesn't live in your basement for life and then God says, here's what I want to tell you. Your kid is going to be freely remarkable. It's going to be a joy to you and he is going to change hearts because the Holy Spirit is going to be with him. How much excitement would you have to see this child come into the world and see what that looks like? How many of you would picture that? Now, imagine how many times they had to repeat this to each other. And I mean this, and this is uh, when John goes and he puts on camel's hair and eats locusts and lives by the thing and is yelling at everyone, repent. Like, not quite how you envisioned it, right? And and so I think they probably repeated this to themselves a lot. And they say, Elizabeth, here's what the angel told me. Uh, He's going to change hearts and God is working through him. So naturally, when the angel comes and tells you a promise that's truly amazing and remarkable in the Lord, you do this. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. <laughs> what I visioned, I don't know how you picture this, but I just picture the angel just like, you know, he's here on the right side of the altar, and then he's there, and then you tell him this amazing promise, and the glow is happening just like in the books, right? And then he goes like, yeah, but how can I be sure? I'd be like, what? I'm an angel, right? <laughs> like, 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 this hasn't happened for 400 plus years. Like, this doesn't happen. And, you know, he's sitting on deck forever up in heaven. Gabriel's like, hey, God doesn't even use it anymore. He talked, you know, Daniel, and that's all, you know, he talked about it. But now he goes down, and he gets this special moment. And then the other angels are just, like, messing with him because they're like, yeah, they don't even believe him. Like, he would have believed me, God, if you sent me. I'm a better messenger than he is. So all this is going down. But then the angel fixes this. And I, do you picture whatever voice you want to hit picture? But I just picture deadpan. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day it happened. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. That's how you will know, right? So he's just like, oh. I shouldn't have doubted, shouldn't have doubted. So this all goes down, this amazing story, and you can imagine him shaking. But meanwhile, like, how long has it taken me just to describe it? The three-minute, four-minute, five-minute prayer is, like, going long. So the, the crowd is getting restless. They're like, he's really old. He could be dead. <laughs> and what w- this is true. Like, in the Old Testament, when they would go to the Holy of Holies, like, another priest can go to the holy place, but they couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. So when they would offer sacrifice on Yom Kippur and they would do the blood, they tied a rope to their leg just in case a guy died because they didn't know what to do, right? So you imagine someone's like, get the rope. We got to get him out of here. So this is going long, and it says, meanwhile, the people were waiting, and Zechariah was wondering why he stayed so long in the temple and wondering why he's there. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. And when his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. She said, the Lord has done this for me, she said. And I think the thing that we want to take away today when you talk about a story like this and when you remember this story, um, earlier on I asked about stigma. And I think we all have our stigma. Some of this stigma is our own doing. Some of it's stuff that we have overspent our money. And some of it is we have misused our stuff or we're the ones with a bunch of debt or we've got in relationships we shouldn't have been in relationship maybe you've been in, in jail maybe you struggled and maybe you struggle with addiction we all have these things that the world sees us and the world judges us elizabeth felt that right the lord has done this for me and i think this is a, a moving line to me and these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among your people 
what Christ does, and I think this will finish up, uh, what Christ does for us is more than just take away the stigma of the people. What Christ does is when he comes and he takes our sins away, he takes care of our biggest problems so that we know our value is not what you think about me. My value stands with what God thinks of me. And when God looks at you, he truly says that you're perfect. And I think that's an amazing thing as you get ready to have a relationship with people and you're interacting with people and you make mistakes and you say, I'm forgiven. And you make mistakes as a family and your kids make mistakes, your grandkids mistakes. But you get to say on behalf of God to them because of what Christ has done, because he came at a real point in time, you were perfect in God's eyes and it does not matter what the world thinks. Your disgrace has been removed forever. Amen. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you truly have taken away our greatest disgrace, uh, the, the things that we're so worried sometimes to face the world because we don't live up to their standards. Maybe we don't think we have enough money. We don't have enough stuff. We don't have enough success. We don't look the right same way. We're too fat. We're too skinny or whatever it is. Uh, we know that none of that matters because that's just a superficial, that's a surface level concern. The real concern that you have said is that at a specific time you sent a forerunner and that forerunner named John prepared people's hearts like ours with repentance so that we recognize that the sins that we have that, that are holding us back, what really matters to you and not the world, is taken away. So in that joy of Advent, help us look forward to Christ coming again. We ask this in your name. Amen.